when I feel like my ideas have been heard and implemented in a way that helps me to build community, that's when I start to feel empowered and I'm willing to share more ideas. I may have the idea in my mind that may solve the issue that we've been talking about, but because I'm sitting in a space where people, I feel like, okay, no one is listening to what I have to say. I may hold that idea in my mind. You know, I may just keep it to myself because I'm like, uh, I'm going to hold on to this one because they're not listening anyway. But if I actually share an idea, you do something with it, you ask for me to continue to contribute, then that's different. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. It is no secret that engaged employees are more productive and more likely to stay with an employer than disengaged employees. Plus, they're generally more pleasant to work with. It's also no surprise that many employers are focusing on creating deeper connections inside their organization, improving their organizational culture, and, dare we say, building a community inside the workplace. Joining us today to discuss all of this is Dr. Whitney Boyd. Whitney works in the Office of the Chancellor at Texas Christian University, where she focuses on building relationships both inside the TCU community and the wider DFW community. She is also conducting research regarding first-generation college students and identity development. And she serves as a leader in TCU's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Outside of TCU, Whitney works with businesses through her consultancy, Doc B Empowers, and hosts the podcast, This World is Ours, which is focused on the experiences of Black women across the world. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Whitney. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm glad to be here. So let's work on definitions first, but are organizational culture and the idea of community the same thing? I think that Oftentimes we look at organizational culture and we have this false notion of community based on our organizational culture. So some people like to lump those two together to think because we have a culture in our workplace, that means that we have community. But you can have a culture that is absent of a sense of community and belonging for all of your employers in your workplace. So let's talk about what what culture. I mean, I mean, every organization has a culture, whether you recognize right. what it is or not. And often we have two of them. We have the aspirational one we put on the posters and all of that. And then we've got the real one, how things really get done here. The people who really gets promoted, how they get promoted, how they get recognized, how we, you know, how we operate. But then, so talk to me about what community and belonging means when you're talking about that, apart from just, you know, culture. Right. So sometimes we have cultures that exist, but they don't necessarily serve different communities. So when we think about belonging and community, so sense of belonging is the psychological feeling that I belong in a space. So a person can tell me that I belong or they can say we have this community and we have a culture where everyone is invited to work here, thrive here, be here. But if I don't feel like I belong, then I may, in fact, lack a sense of belonging in that workspace. So it's really a, you know, it's that term connection we hear a lot. Uh, you know, how connected are they to 
the, the workplace, the people they work with. Uh, and I would guess that would uh, values alignment with where the organization, what the organization really values and, uh, and, and what that individual's values are. Those kind of things are what you're talking about when you're talking about a whole community. Yeah. So I think like as an employee, if I were your employee and we have a workplace culture for sure, right? So it may be a culture that mimics your values, your beliefs, your style, your leadership, but it may not be a place where I can find myself and I can be the best employee or be the most productive individual. So I think that the workplace as different people enter the workplace and our workplaces become more diverse, we have to account for that also within our culture. I think every workplace has a culture, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a strong culture or an inclusive culture. There is indeed a culture. And, yeah, there is one. Yeah. And and uh, a lot of organizations, like I said earlier, have an idea of what they want their culture or, or what sounds good to them. Mm-hmm. But when you're in reality, the way the leaders act and, and, uh, who they select and all of those kind of things mm-hmm. uh, often define uh, the real culture. Yeah, I think you see often, and you 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 talked about like aspirational, right? We all have our aspirations mm-hmm. of what we want to say or maybe who we want to be, but then in reality, like who we actually are. And I think some of those things come into play when companies make what I'm going to call like a grandstand or something where they're saying, oh, this is our culture. This is how we're promoting a strong culture. And the employees are like, who asked for that? <laughs> where did that come from? How did you get to that decision to think that that was the best outcome of what we wanted as, as a community of people who work in this shared location, this shared space? And then individually, I mean, you know, I think part of one of the challenge you have when you're building culture is that, um, you know, your workplace is made up of a whole bunch of different people, right? Mm-hmm. And they're going to have different values and different backgrounds and uh, preferred styles and all of that. And that kind of boils down to the individual identity. Um, talk to me about identity. And, and you know, that's you've got research around around how that's uh, how that's being developed. So uh, what does that look like? Both, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing, you know, what's it look like in these, you know, these early, early college year students versus once they're entering the, the workplace uh, post-college, what, how does the identity develop? And, and when you're talking about identity, what do you, what, how do you define that? Yeah. So my work, when I'm talking about identity, what I get a chance to do at TCU and external too, is to talk to people about social identity. So a number of those things that are more social constructs that other people really define about us, like our race, class, gender, those types of things of like societal structures. So when I think about how those things show up in the workplace, I think in years past, we maybe say, oh, well, work is work, life is life, right? But I think what we know now is that there's no real separation between work and life. And so the things that are happening around my social identities in life, I'm bringing into the workplace too. Though I may not focus solely on that, like in the workplace, but it's going to show up. It's going to be a part of how I make decisions, who I connect with in the workplace and how I navigate that space. So what I spend time doing is focusing on how can we better understand who we are as a person based on our social identities? Because that helps us to have an understanding of how we connect with other people. So instead of telling people, okay, well, keep this separate, because how do I keep my real identities separate? And when they literally make up how I view the world, how I make decisions, how I connect with people. 
Instead, if I can dig a little deeper and better understand who I am, then I can better understand and listen to different perspectives. I can sit down and have a conversation with you across different identities and be able to hear your perspective, you hear mine, and then we can come up with a mutual understanding of what takes place in the workplace. And so when we're talking about identity, you know, I can look at Dr. Boyd and say, okay, Dr. Boyd is black and female. And that's kind of, you know, that's a duality of your, you know, phenotypic traits, but they really don't tell me very much at all compared to what I will learn from understanding your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, what your faith community, if any, was like, those kinds of things. That's what's really going to tell me um, who, you know, who, who Whitney Boyd is. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of businesses make when they're doing, you know, implementing a DEI program or anything like that. They're not investing enough to understand who each individual is. And they're just treating groups of people, you know, they're counting noses for lack of a better term. And, uh, and, and, you know, so I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you say, but that's been a criticism that, that I think has kind of been valid uh, against not DEI, the idea, those concepts, but mm-hmm. how that's been implemented in a lot of organizations. Yeah, I think one of the things that we don't always account for when I talked earlier about a sense of belonging and the psychological feeling that I belong in a space and that I'm valued and that my ideas are heard. Oftentimes we, again, want people to show up just like as an employee but you're right. Like I show up as a black woman and all the, my faith impacts of all these intersecting identities that are impacting how I navigate the workplace, how I navigate outside of the workplace, too. And I can't separate those. And for me, that has become so important for me to work in a space where I don't feel forced to separate those because I know that my innovation, my uh, perspective, my ability to connect with people all comes from all of the different identities that make up who I am. So there's this um, adage about like diversity is inviting people to the party and inclusion is letting them dance. So I often tell people I'm a big Beyonce fan. And so I'm like, it's one thing you invite me to the party. You're like, Whitney, come, come to the party. Right. Okay. So that's diversity. You'll have different people there. And once I'm there, you're like, hey, you could dance. Like, come on, dance. That's inclusion. So you're inviting people to the table. But then the sense of belonging. But if you're asking me to dance and you're playing no Beyonce the whole party, I'm like, did you do you really want me to dance? Like, because that's where sense of belonging comes in. That means that I can really engage with who I am and the things that I value, the, the people that I love. I feel like I can connect with those things in the workplace. So that's where you move from diversity to inclusion to actually a sense of belonging. You're going to play Beyonce because you want Whitney to feel like she belongs, right? And I know some people's arguments are, well, how do you manage that in the workplace? It's not necessarily that you're going to say and be able to account for every identity that's out there, but it does mean that whatever my identities are, I believe I can bring those into the workplace. Right. And I think that's that's the whole idea of, you know, uh, you know, and I've uh, we were at we spoke at, together at a conference mm-hmm. uh, for the Fort Worth Chamber not long ago, and I made a wise you know a wise ass comment that yeah you know you can bring your whole stuff to work, but I just really am interested in the product productive part. <laughs> right. But the reality is is the productive part comes because of some of those other things, mm-hmm. and I think for a long time uh, all kinds of of of, of different uh, you know demographics. Well, that's great 
just kind of keep that in the background. And as long as, you know, what if that bring, it makes you a better, you know, graphic artist or a better account sales manager or whatever it is, that's great. But just kind of tap down on it, uh, you know, so it doesn't mm-hmm. make us uncomfortable or we, you know, or we don't worry about what this client thinks or those kinds of things. Uh, I think that's, you know, I think we're getting past that in a lot of workplaces. I think uh, uh, we're a lot more, you know, especially certainly the younger generations are a lot more comfortable uh, with, you know, what back in my day, we would have said, let your freak flag fly, right? You know, just do, you know, you be you. And, uh, and so, and if you have that party where you have people dancing, uh, I will feel included if you have tequila before we start dancing, because that's the only way you're going to get me on the dance floor. Right. We need, and we need to know that, right. We need to be able to understand what is it going to, what does it take to help you feel like you're actually, if we want to build community, right. I mean, some things we just want to say that we're doing this as a part of our culture, but if we truly want to build community and I think what we know now employers know is that once people can connect and build community within the workplace, they are more productive. They're more likely to stay. And you can help retain employees by doing those things. How does that identity and that recognizing the unique identities of different employees, how does that play into the idea of, of being empowered at work? Yeah. So my work, I always tell people that my job is to empower people to first explore themselves so then they can explore how they build and connect in community with other people. So I believe that we become empowered when we can understand who we are as an individual and based around our social identities, then I can connect and I can feel empowered when I'm in a room and I can share my my perspective, my voice, my ideas. And then other people, if they understand who they are, they can hear my ideas, even when they're different than theirs. And difference doesn't scare us in the, at that point. And it starts with that, that individual self-awareness is what you're saying. And so, and recognizing that, yeah, you know, I am a 53-year-old white guy who's owned his own company for, uh, you know, 24 years. And that's a very different person than I was when I was a 30-year-old, uh, you know, white guy just starting a business for the first time and um, uh, actually starting my second business after having flown the first one into the, you know, into the Himalayas and, and crashing it. Uh, but that, that you know, my experience over, you know, a quarter century of, of doing this is, is really different than, and so that self-awareness is, uh, is challenging, uh, I think, because we're not, it's dynamic, right? Who we are changes. Right. But you as a 53 year old white man, like you being able to explore what that means helps you as a leader to be able to connect with someone else who may be a 30 year old white man or a 30 year old, um, Asian woman, whomever it may be, because if you can understand how your identities come into play, then I think it can help you when you're building relationships with the people who work with you. So how do I know if my community in my workplace that I've that I'm trying to build as a, as a leader is uh, is positive is what it is, is where, where it should be? What, what does that look like? I think you ask people. I think you ask the people. I think oftentimes employees are afraid of the answer so they don't really want to ask or they want to ask in a way that's safe. And that's like a very like, oh, did you enjoy this ice cream treat that we offered? Yeah, I enjoyed the ice cream treat because I like ice cream, but that has nothing to do with me feeling like you listen to my ideas. So ask those tough questions. Um, But I also believe that you have people who are champions in the room 
from different identities that also can share perspective. Not saying that like me as a black woman that I'm going to come and speak on behalf of all black women. But there may be an opportunity for me to have a different connection or a different perspective that can connect with yours and we can get different ideas to the table to hear different voices. But I think that also means that you have to hire people from different perspectives too to be able to have a table uh, where people feel like they can bring ideas. From my experience, people will share things in community where they feel a sense of community that they won't share just in a workplace culture. And oftentimes that may be because the culture isn't what they thought it was. <laughs> and probably more in the majority population. I mean, you know, the, you know if the organization is a primarily uh, white and male, let's say, there's there's a, a sense of ickiness. I mean, you know, how do I have this conversation? You know, how do I how do I ask these questions without offending somebody or or by, uh, you know, making their, you know, their race or their sex or, you know, what state they're from or whatever, essentially, you know, you know, essentializing that, you know, reducing that person just to, you know, to these things. How do you have, you know, what are some other, some questions you could really ask when you're saying ask that group, you know, ask, ask your employees, what are good questions to ask around that to start the conversation? And when I said that, too, I want to be clear, like what I was really saying, too, is just being able to have and sit down and have conversation, like finding a common ground with people. I think as we are able to connect with people and their stories and understand them as people, then we can get an understanding, too, of what their actual experience is in our workplace. So that may be literally just inviting someone in to have a conversation to to talk about what their experience has been. And I, then I think that once you can connect like as individuals, then you're able to get some of that information that you may be curious about on their experience because they may have a different level of comfort. But there are so many times within the workplace because people have this fear like, oh, well, what do we have in common? What will we sit down and talk about that they just don't have the conversation? But for one, you're still both human people who have lived experiences of something and not being afraid of being uncomfortable in that space. I think the worst way to ask the question is to ask them to ask a person with a diverse perspective to come in the room and just have to like share all these things that may be a negative or a positive experience, but looking at them as an expert on their their race or their gender, uh, but actually inviting them into a space where you want to hear from them based on their talents and skills and their perspectives that they that they do bring to the table. And is that where empowerment comes in? I mean, at what point does, is, you know, do we reach where that point where employees actually feel them, feel empowered? And I, I think you're, when you say empowerment, you're talking about empowered to, to be themselves and to, to bring everything that they have to bear on the, on the task at hand to get the job done. I think that that empowerment comes when you, when I say it and you do something about it, like you actually do something with what I told you. Right. So if I give you ideas and I share my perspective on how we can build community or how we can build or how we can, if I'm working in IT and I say this is my idea around what we can do when I feel like my ideas have been heard and implemented in a way that helps me to build community. That's when I start to feel empowered and I'm willing to share more ideas. I may have the idea in my mind that may solve the issue that we've been talking about, 
But because I'm sitting in a space where people, I feel like, okay, no one is listening to what I have to say. I may hold that idea in my mind. You know, I may just keep it to myself because I'm like, "Ah, I'm going to hold on to this one because they're not listening anyway. But if I actually share an idea, you do something with it, you ask for me to continue to contribute, then that's different. I think a way of doing it is using different uh, ways in meetings and when we're sharing or brainstorming in a space. What happens when we actually like encourage dissent and for people to have differing ideas? Oftentimes we get stuck in like group think where I don't want to say anything because I don't want to be the one to prolong the meeting or I don't want to be the one where they're just like talking over me. But what happens if you actually ask people like to create dissent in a positive way? It does, it's not negative. It's just allowing people with different perspectives to bring those perspectives to the table. And it's actually encouraged by the leadership. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of an hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on research credits. Then select episode 66 and enter the keyword identity. That's I-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 10 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. Three are even approved for HRCI business credit, and one qualifies for ethics credit. You can access all of these webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Whitney Boyd. And I think a big part of that is is not just on, you know, the the most obvious, you know, demographic traits that somebody might have or uh but behavior and personality styles too. Like I'm, you know, on uh, you know, on, on most uh, behavioral assessments, I'm high dominance, high social, uh, and I've got ideas, and I just vomit my ideas on 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 everybody, and and I'm convinced that they're always right, and they usually are. But the then on the flip side, I've surrounded myself because I'm that visionary type. I've surrounded myself with people who are good executors, and and but the problem is. I need constant, I need immediate feedback or I expect immediate feedback, but they're internal processors, right? They're taking the data in, you know, I'm intuitive. I'm jumping to the conclusion before I even have all the details, you know, but I can see the long road, but they need to process it. So in in our organization, often I'll throw something out there and I can, and I've over, you know, years of working with, with these folks, uh, I've recognized, okay, I could tell the you know the gears are turning in there but it's good we i may need to say you know what uh this is why that's what i'm thinking let's revisit this tomorrow and y'all get your you get your head straight and think about what this really means you know and, and is this practical and and what would the impacts be and give them that time and so it's not just you know it's and i think how people's own personal behaviors are their own behavior you know their own worldviews and all of that have such a big impact on, on how, how they can contribute. And you got to make room. So that means I have to give up my desire for that immediate, you know, dopamine hit of them saying, yeah, <laughs> boss, you're the genius. Right. Uh, you know, I have to wait till tomorrow for them to say that. Uh, it's you know, coming, but, but you know, have, it's coming. Right, you yeah, know that's I, it better be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, but you know, so that, that's, that's another place where, 
I'm empowering them, right? I'm telling them I need your feedback and I recognize I need to you know, modify my own behavior in order to get the best from you. So I think that's the reason that when I talk and I do this work around understanding ourselves, that's why it's so important because you can understand that that's your preference, but you're leaning heavy on preference. It doesn't mean that it's the only way to do it. It's just your right. preference, right? So it's I just think the best way. It's just because it's your way, right? Naturally. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel the same way. Um, yeah. But what I think about knowing ourselves is because we can then start to point out places where we may have power, influence, or privilege and say, okay, this is me leaning on preference now. This is me leaning on my understanding of the world and how I operate. But it's not necessarily how everyone else operates. But you know for your team to come up with the best solutions, you need to take a pause. Right. And uh, and so whether it's in behavior styles or just getting as deep a uh, feedback as we can on any issues we're, we're trying to, to deal with. What we want is to make sure that everyone is heard. And I mean, sometimes that means you have to listen to dumb ideas. I mean, we just have to admit, you know, accept that. And, but we have to make the time and the space, you know, to vet, to vet and, you know, to vet the ideas. And sometimes that means I like that term uh, rather than straw man, steel man, you know, give me all the arguments against my idea. And, and let's hear, you know, let's hear them. Uh, and sometimes they're, you know, sometimes they, they're right. And, you know, and sometimes they're like, you know, there, it's not true that there are no dumb ideas, but doesn't mean we shouldn't at least hear them. And you know, if you got one performer who only gives you dumb ideas all the time, maybe you need to reconsider if that's, that's right a different about. conversation. <laughs> right. But you know what, Mike, that what I think about is oftentimes we are reactive in the workplace when we're building culture and community, we're reactive to something that happened instead of being proactive and actually creating a sense of belonging and a building a community that is reflective of what the people are in need of. Um, because we don't want to know maybe what we're doing wrong. We're really not ready to make that change. And I think one of the worst mistakes too that people make is that's where people get called out for being performative, right? It's because you have these conversations. You say, everybody come in. We're going to have a listening session. We want to listen to our employees. We, we have employee resource groups. We want all of our employee resource groups to be there. And you share all these things. And no one actually does anything with it. It's like, I just bared my soul to you. And you were like, thank you so much. And then you have donuts tomorrow. Who asked you for a donut? <laughs> and we're treated, and I think those sessions, what they really uh, can get treated like is more of a therapy session for that employee than than for the company to realize, you know, where we are and and how we might better, you know, do the thing, you know, better do our business. I mean, none of us, unless you're a nonprofit that's got a really weird mission, none of us are starting companies in order to keep people hired and uh, engaged. But we need employees. We need we need them engaged. We need them to be themselves in order to accomplish the organization's mission. And so, um, so it should be more those, you know, any kind of, you know, um, listening sessions and stuff like that. I think those are often the sign that you don't have frontline leadership and you don't have executive leadership that's engaging in the conversations on the fact that those are necessary, you know, and I'd probably suggest, and I'd, I'd be curious to you if, if I've, if I've, if I've got an organization that I feel like is really, has a number of disengaged folks. Uh, maybe they're not just disengaged. Maybe they're just uh, flat unhappy. You know, they they're in that quiet quitting group, and um, which is an awful term. Um, but it's but a real term. In, 
Yeah, it's a real term, and it's it's, it's something thing. that's gone on for it's it's just a new term for an old behavior, right? Right. right. Uh, you know, employees that are disengaged, you know, and or employees who are then there's the other group of employees who's disengaged, and then there's a, who are just setting healthy boundaries, mm-hmm. and uh, and in both cases they point to leadership problems. If yeah. I've got if I've got employees who have to go out of their way to set healthy boundaries, that's a leadership problem because not that they're setting them, but that that leadership wasn't already you know, uh, helping them do that. But then if I've got in disengaged employees, either I selected the wrong people for the the roles that they're in, uh, or I haven't incentivized and managed and led them properly, uh, or I haven't helped them exit to something, to some place where they're going to be happier. And sometimes that's what we need to do. Um, but all of that, I mean, give me on my soapbox about uh, about quiet quitting and we can, we'll go all day. But I but- think that even with what you're saying about the quiet quitting and the disengaged employees and all that, if we're honest, a lot of the issues come right there at that mid-level management with that direct supervision where it's, it's, I think honestly, a lot of times it is because people are not willing to connect with people as individuals and allowing them to explore like who they are in the workplace. And it's because it's different than how I am. And I'm just scared of that. People are so afraid of difference or you may, it may turn out that Mike, I may have a better idea than you. Wild yeah. thought, but I may have a better idea than you. Yeah. Well, and I, I would love, I mean, you know, quite honestly, most leaders, I think most of the leaders I respect anyway, would love for that to happen. I mean, most of us don't want to carry the burden of always being right and carrying the organization on our shoulders and, and most of us can't do it forever. I mean, you know, the truth is, is you can, you know, if at every at batch you have to hit a home run, you're in trouble. You've got to rely on the rest of your team to, to, to carry that weight too. So to shift gears a little bit, your, uh, your, your first day at the job and I'm a frontline leader, um, what should what do you think that conversation day one from that frontline leader to that new employee ought to be like in order to start building the those connections that understanding of of you know of who you are as a new employee and and you know vice versa from the new employee to understand you know what does the leader look like because I think uh, you know it shouldn't be an interrogation a one way thing it should be a conversation so what do you think that conversation should look like Yeah. I think something that I often want to know, I want to have clear expectations of what I'm there to do. Like what are um, my expectations in the workplace? Kind of how does this work? And I want to be able to uh, ask questions. And so I think if you invite people in early on to ask you questions, and then obviously you ask them questions too, then that can create a space where you, you may feel like dialogue is welcome to where I don't have to go all day with all these questions in my brain. Oftentimes, too, I think just the leader taking time to sit down with the person on the first day is important because sometimes you show up on the first day and the leader's like, hey, I'll be back, you know. But when someone makes time for you and they carve out time to even ask about you, get to know you, want to know how your first day is going, wanting to contribute to that. And it's not saying I think people often confuse, too, when we talk about authentic or authenticity in the workplace, saying that. I got to come and I can feel like I can tell my boss everything about my life. I don't want to talk to my boss about everything in my life. Let's be very Especially clear. On day one, right? Right. Yeah. Or day like 365. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. do not want to do that. But what I do want to do is I, I want to be able to come into a workplace where I feel like I can be inquisitive. I can ask questions and I can welcome people to ask questions of me too and people to be curious about um, 
about my well-being and how I'm thriving in the workplace. Because there's a difference between obviously surviving and thriving in the workplace. Right. And I know in in uh, in my interview and employee selection process, we have conversations around. Uh, you know, tell me about the times you were most successful. What what was that environment like? What you know, uh, you know, what did you what you know when you were when you felt like you're the the high contributor when you were at your best self at work? What did that look like? What what were those circumstances and um, and I think on day one, you can follow those questions up with, you know, okay, you know, here's, here's our culture. Here's our history. Here's our values. This is why we do, this is who we serve. And this is why we're passionate about, you know, the way we serve these clients. Um, you know, what can I help you with in understanding that better? And, and what do you think, uh, you know, what are, what are things that you think would be challenges for you in this environment? Uh, those kind of things. What other, you know, those kind of questions uh, yeah. to start the conversation. Yeah. And maybe even asking about like, literally like what you're saying too, how do you work best? So even thinking about if, if it's a place where obviously there can be some flexibility, I think we're going to have to continue to deal with that as employers, like figuring out how to offer more flexibility. Like for me, it's probably important for my employer to know I really turn on around 9 a.m. Right. <laughs> but like, give me a little extra time. I, I won't be your best employee at eight. But when I, if I can get started good at 9 a.m., you will get the most productivity from me at that point. And me being able to communicate that and feeling confident that it won't seem like I'm a slacker or because that's just not how or when I work best. But all I'm asking for is, hey, let me come in a little later so that I can work out that I want to ride my Peloton in the morning. I want to do this because there's all these things that I want to get done. And, you know, some people are like, well, just get up earlier and get to work at eight. But that's a thought. And that's, that's valid. (laughs) But for me to feel like I'm being valued in that way, I'll be the best employee you have starting at nine. But for me to be able to have that conversation and talk about kind of what does your morning look like? What's, how does your, you know, how do you want your afternoons to look to it? It feels like I can have some buy-in too and how I do work and like how I prefer to work. And now that we're in remote environments, um, are there different things that, you know, that, you know, whether it's remote or hybrid, are there different things you think business leaders should be doing to, to build community and to engage uh, with their employees? Yeah. I think that there was this like, so everyone was remote. When I say everyone, you know what I mean? And then there was this like, come back. That was probably maybe not the best way to get people to come back. I literally had a friend uh, who tweeted the other day, if they make me start coming to the office more than one day a week, I'm going to throw up. (laughs) It's like, whoa, Mm -hmm. like she was just not having it. But it seems like it's coming out of nowhere. So I still think if you've been in a workplace where you've been shown that flexibility and what it can look like and you've adjusted your life to that, I think asking, and you've been successful, and in, you've it? Been successful yeah, yeah, in it, right? being able to ask people about like what helped you in that setting to be so successful, right? How were you able to still connect to your team? Maybe there were some, like I remember some of us, we had these weekly calls where we just had a check-in for an hour, but that's how we were building community while we were remote. And it was like three or four people across the institution where we had some shared identities and we were just like, hey, let me just have a check-in with you had nothing to do with like our direct work, but it helped us to feel more connected to the institution, the environment and be productive in the workplace. 
And, you know, TCU is a great example. The majority of your workplace workforce has to be on campus yeah. during the school day. I mean, yeah. your, your instructors, uh, facility, you've got a giant physical plan. Mm-hmm. And I live across the street. So <laughs> uh, thank you for maintaining the physical plan. Yes. And, you know, you know, uh, but um, uh, during the freeze, the great freeze we had last year, I'm on TCU's electrical grid. I don't, <sighs> I didn't lose, I don't lose a, you know, my lights don't even flicker. It's nice. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. But so thank you for that. But uh, y'all are, you know, y'all going remote much of the time, mm-hmm. you know, and for many of your positions wasn't a possibility. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, y'all probably like every or- other organization mm-hmm. did some things right and did some things wrong. And so, and I think leaders just have to be humble. Okay. We, we jerk, you know, we, we messed that one up. We jerked yeah. that, that leash a little too hard here. And you just have to say, Okay, but going forward, you know, here's what the expectations are. Help us, you know, achieve the outcomes by giving us the feedback that we need in order to to plan this correctly next time. Yeah, I always think about too, like, how do we train the actual like? I, th- I feel like decisions like that around flexible work and all that happen at the highest level where those decisions, but then it's left to mid level managers to really implement. So. How do we train and prepare mid-level managers to actually manage those conversations, manage those relationships with employees to still help employees stay engaged? Right. Because the wrong thing to do, uh, and I've seen it happen a number of times, is, well, is for that manager who's the primary communication with the, the employee to say, yeah, the bosses are making me do this. And I'm sorry, I don't care if you're an HR or you're a frontline supervisor or what. If you're going to keep this job and you're going to stay in this leadership role, you own the decision, even if you didn't make the decision. And sometimes you don't disagree with the decision, but you've got to make the decision. If you make the ethical decision to stay in this company and to stay in this role, then you're making the decision to support this position of the organization, unless it's something obviously illegal or, uh, you know, just, you know, completely unfair and you and you need to push back. But, uh, you know, I think that's one thing leaders fail to do is they want to curry favor with their employees. So they just let the bad, you know, the bad guys or the heavies be somebody over, you know, the headquarters or whatever. And I think that's a, that's, that's not a healthy way to, to deal with it. And when we talk about empowering employees, like empowering them to like own decisions that are made and, and you do trust them to make the best decision for their department. But then as like mid-level managers, like how do you actually still implement? Because I think that's where the disconnect is often where you see things coming out from the headquarters or the the main office at an organization, but it's not necessarily being translated down to where it's like, well, do we really value this? Because in my area, that's not how it's being translated. What we saw on the commercial about our company yesterday is not what's happening in my area. So how do you actually ensure that people are trained and prepared to to have and lead those uh, relationships, which we're all relational people. So how do you avoid people <laughs> in that way? Yeah. The last question, and it's it's going to be a, a French goodbye. I think it will we'll talk. It'll take longer to talk about it than than we than it sounds, but. Uh, your research at TCU focuses part of it is on first generation college students, and uh, on graduation, those students, even if they were at TCU or wherever they were at college, you know, fully embraced the you know and and had the assistance to embrace the college world and uh, and understand what that means. 
when they enter the workplace, they're probably entering workplaces as well that are very different than what their parents' uh, workplaces were like. Um, how can an employer help these young professionals who are either first-generation college or just first-generation, maybe white-collar or professional, how can they help those folks uh, acclimate successfully to the workplace? Yeah, that's that's a very good question that I have been grappling with because a lot of the resources stop at college level. So if you think about being the first in your family, you've navigated this process, you've gotten to college, you've graduated from college, you're still more than likely, like you said, to be the first in your family to work in that corporate environment or that type of setting. So what I always lean on to, just like other um, different identities where we may have employee resource groups or support systems, also offering that type of thing for first generation college students. But that also, so at a university level, where we talk about college access, we, we speak on things around like our jargon, the policies and things that we just assume people know about, but like who really knows what that is? You know, unless you've had that experience or you have someone who's walked you through that. So what I would do is encourage employers to actually acknowledge and recognize like their identity as first generation college students and what their experience may be and how it may be different than someone who maybe they've had three generations of people to do similar. Like my father was an accountant, my grandfather was an accountant, all of this. And so here I am. So what does this look like for someone who this is their first time? talking about benefits, talking about salary negotiations and all that, like who in HR is the go-to for just helping people navigate that and them being equipped with the understanding of how to help first-gen graduates excel in the workplace. So my research looks at getting the maximum benefit from being in college. So thriving in college means that it's moving beyond just access. It's moving beyond just getting the job, but how do I prepare for the next steps in my career? How do I prepare for um, for for the job after the next job, right? And so, how do you have those types of things offered through your in, not institution, your employer, your employer, uh, for people to take advantage of? To where if they don't have that um, setting where they can't just call someone and ask them, because there's some of our greatest employees with the greatest ideas, but may just not have the access or the structural um, background to navigate the workplace in that way. And I, and and you mentioned it, you know, somebody in HR to do that. And I'd make the argument that HR supports making sure the frontline managers have the ability to do that, and uh, and, and, and enabling and empowering them to do that. And because that's what happens too often is we we say, oh, somebody needs to do this, give it to HR, and HR has got you know, a, you know, a one to. 50 uh, employee to uh, HR or one to 100 employee to HR ratio. And you can't, they can't be successful in that, but they can put the programs in place to help managers understand, Hey, you're recruiting out of this, this, out of this, this pool of people, and you're going to bring in some of those folks. And your job as a leader is to make sure that they're successful and, and do what you have to do to make them successful. Part of that is understanding they don't. They may not have the same background as as that that kid whose parents were accountants and grandparents were accountants and all and all of that. And I think and and yes, my friends at HR would tell me the same thing. Stop giving us everything. Um, but I would say for the people who are in talent acquisition and in that area or recruiting, like and then even being intentional, like as an advocate for people who are first gen and being intentional about when you're going if you go to a campus to recruit, 
perhaps you even see what programs and offerings there are on that campus for first-gen students and maybe even setting up something separate to meet with students who are first-gen, working with a program that uh, offers support to help them prepare for the interviews and the job market and all that. That's something I think if companies are committed to um, recruiting um, from different backgrounds, that's something that they could do, you know, just like you have a meeting with students in the business school. You can also have a group of first-gen students that you sit down and talk to or having mentoring programs. That's some, replicate some of the things that you see happening on college campuses within the workplace. But first-gen is not one of those visible identities to where it's often a forgotten identity. Right. You don't, you don't, you know, there's, we don't walk around with, you know, stickers on Mm -hmm. us that say, this is my first time. This is my first rodeo. Right. 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 Well, that's all the time we have. Thanks to, uh, thanks for joining me, Dr. Whitney Boyd. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guest at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, please don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.